Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski talk about sustainability in watches, the Hard Rock Summit, and the Pandora Papers. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles. And I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and JCK Online, calling in from New York City. My goodness, it's fall. How's your fall started? How's how's life looking? It's all right. It's, you know, it's getting cooler. You're starting to feel it. It's getting darker earlier and uh, all that good stuff. And do the streets kind of feel bustling or is the city feeling more or less back to its normal pace? I wouldn't say it's a normal pace, but Susan, my wife takes the subway. She says it's pretty crowded. It's getting crowded. So I don't think it's back to normal pace, but it's it's getting there. I mean, you know, all the masks are back. There was like three blessed weeks when uh, people were starting to lose them and, you know, people were feeling more confident with all the vaccines and stuff. And then Delta came and it's, uh, definitely all the masks are back and, you know, people are taking precautions again. And you don't forget that you're in uh, this nightmarish uh, apocalyptic hellscape. You know, I must say I have had moments of forgetting and I haven't told you this story, I don't think, but I do want to share it because it does have a really great watch tie in. A week ago, so it was basically late September, I was invited by Rolex along with my partner, Jim, to attend the opening of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures here in LA, which has been, you know, a decade in the making. It's designed and built by Renzo Piano, the, the Italian star architect, Pritzker Prize winning architect. You know, I'd heard of it. It was basically had been in some form of construction or development for many, many years on Fairfax and Wilshire, right in the heart of the Miracle Mile next to LACMA, our famous contemporary art museum, and right across from the Peterson Auto Museum, which is another big landmark for car lovers. And it finally opened and we got an invite from Rolex, who a lot of people know of it as this huge sponsor of major sporting events, of the US Open, of the Ryder Cup, of Formula One. But I don't know that lots of people are all that familiar with how deeply Rolex is involved with the world of cinema and particularly here in Hollywood they are affiliated I think they're a big sponsor of the Academy itself the Academy of Motion Pictures they sponsor the Oscars the Green Room at the Oscars and they are also very much a founding supporter of this museum and it's a really beautiful museum anybody who's a film buff a cinema buff would literally get lost there for hours it's remarkable we were allowed to go take a tour of the galleries before uh, the gala started on this particular Saturday night and even before the gala we were invited to an event with about 15 people and one of Rolex's mentors in their arts protege program who happened to be Spike Lee, who, as it happens, has a wonderful exhibition at the museum itself, pulling in artifacts from his movies and posters. And so even before the gala, we were treated to this incredibly intimate cocktail event with him. And I snapped this wonderful photo of Spike Lee, Rolex's US president, and a couple other people, I think their clients, all sporting Daytonas, which are, you know, the highly coveted chronograph that pretty much no one can get, or at least not for any reasonable price. Anyway, so this gala event was just remarkable. It was like an Oscars, but a private Oscars because there were all the celebrities. There were Nicole Kidman and Tom Hanks and Halle Berry, Sophia. 
Sophia Loren was one of the honorees of the brand new Visionary Award, which again was name checked. Rolex was name checked again because they sponsored the award. So they're kind of all over the museum in a way, but it's not like you can see their logo anywhere. But I do want to say the one big item that is sort of a glaring presence in the museum is you walk through one of the galleries called Stories of Cinema, and there's a particular area that's like a timeline of all the Oscar winners over the past century or since the 20s or whenever the Oscars began. And, you know, little tidbits on what made that particular Oscars, you know, ceremony famous or why the film was pivotal in some way. And you get to like right around 1980 and there's only one object on display in the whole gallery. Everything else is either a picture or, you know, words. And it happens to be the famous Daytona that was owned by Paul Newman, auctioned at Phillips in 2017 for 17 plus million dollars. And basically we were gallying at this amazing affair and having a gay old time and we finished up our dinner and drinks and Lady Gaga performed, by the way. So we sat through this remarkably intimate performance. And then we got about half an hour to wander through the museum at the tail end of the night before the galleries closed at midnight. I knew there was something Rolexy on display, but I didn't know what. And I knew I needed to take a picture of it just for memory and just maybe to Instagram. And I happened to see this Rolex and I, I really didn't think much of it. I thought, oh yeah, okay, there's the Rolex. I didn't sit there and think too deeply on it. I snapped a photo of it. It, put it on my Instagram. By morning, I'd had a huge amount of new followers, a lot of questions, a lot of engagement, people getting super excited that this is the first time that particular watch, which is, you know, was bought by an anonymous bidder. People are speculating, was Rolex the bidder? Did they get it on loan from the collector who bought it? Like, why is this here? Rolex did say that it was on loan from the collector. So it does sound like Rolex is not the bidder, but they know the bidder and got it on loan for the museum. So there was like all this hubbub, which was just a funny to this wonderful experience we had. So anyway, that's all by way of saying I did forget that the pandemic was going on because everybody was having such a gale time. Everybody had to be vaccinated. Everybody had to show proof of a negative test within three hours. And it was a lot of it was outside on the patio. I, I don't think I'll ever have a, a more fabulous, fancy experience again. But you went the good kind of viral. Exactly. I went good viral. I felt chuffed, as the Brits would say. It was a pretty joyful experience. I'm still a little bit on a high. I went back to the museum a couple of days later when they had a, another press event just so I could take a look around. And again, if anybody happens to be coming to LA and you consider yourself a movie buff, and even if you're not, I think you would find something that would just delight you in this museum. I could go on and on. So again, if you come through LA, don't miss this museum. And hopefully you'll catch sight of the Rolex before it goes back to its anonymous owner. Uh, I don't. Well, I don't have anything quite as exciting. I got a pizza the other night. That was good, but uh, nothing like that. It feels like it opened the floodgates because in the last week or two, I've gotten so many invites for events. Tag Heuer is having something. Omega is celebrating No Time to Die. The Bond flick that's finally out. You know, after many many postponements. I was supposed to go to Greenland in two days to visit the ruby mine, had a ticket and everything. And unfortunately, Greenland has seen a small uptick in cases, but it's you know significant for an island of some 56,000 people. So anyway, my trip to Greenland has been postponed. And you, you had another excursion, I guess not as glamorous, but probably glamorous. Yes, I did. I went to the very first ever Hard Rock Summit, which is- yeah, Now, was Lady Gaga there or no? 
<laughs> got to bypass this one. It was glamorous if the very esoteric world of extremely high value minerals and gemstones is your thing. And it is my thing. And we ended up even bringing our son, Nico. Jim and Nico came with me because the show had two components. One part of it was at the Denver Convention Center and it was called Evolution. It was dedicated to minerals. A little bit of fossils, but mostly minerals. Very, very high value specimens. I mean, I think I saw a $4 million emerald crystal, which is a pretty stunning thing to behold. And then the second part of it was called Sparkle and Joy. And it was more of a traditional trade show. And that was at the Sheraton downtown, a few minutes walk from the evolution show at the convention center. So you could go between them. And the whole idea was that the organizers of the show pair crystals and gems, which is a pairing that we don't normally see in the in our world. We go to shows and we see loose gemstones or we see finished jewelry, but it's very rare, if not unheard of, to see actually minerals in that same environment or at least coupled with with that and that does seem a little confusing from a gem perspective because they do seem like they're the same world but those markets have always been treated very separately and I think this is a nascent effort to unite them and it was really fun and I think for retailers there's a lot to gain from this world of minerals I mean just as display items or ways to merchandise your cases I can't think of anything better and I'd interviewed and did a separate story on an exhibitor that was at Sparkle and Joy called Lux Rocks um, it was founded by Nan Lung Palmer and Kelly Fun- Delacus, who are two wonderful women. I dear friends with Kelly for many years and they live in Denver and they founded a company that is like a subscription service. You sign up for either three months or six months or 12 months and you get a different mineral specimen on a branded display stand sent to you. But they also have a wholesale component that they can work with retailers who again would think about either buying these as client appreciation gifts or buying them as elements for their merchandising. And so again, a lot of different connections between the world of minerals and gems that that I don't know why our industry is never really expressly put together, but it was cool. It was really cool. And it was great fun because they had a children's portion or they were open to kids at the evolution show. And so, you know, Nico got there and got his bag of rocks and we got to see rocks that were fluorescent and there were dinosaur like displays and fossils on display. And just, you know, that's the kind of stuff that gets people excited and gets kids excited about hopefully our wider world of gems. It's a great way to seed that kind of interest. Yeah, the, the shows, the year even though attendance has been down they've been generally good i mean jck was really good was there that same kind of feeling at this show i don't think it was hugely attended it was the first year and also just a little bit of a strange time for people to travel obviously so i think there is some potential there and i've spoken to a few gem dealers who think that if world travel remains difficult or sluggish and especially if hong kong remains a difficult place to travel to and if they're they keep up with their quarantine mandates then it will remain a very difficult show for anybody outside of Hong Kong to travel to, then then Denver has the potential to become a hub for even global gem traders or mineral traders because it's in September, it's right on the brink of fall, it might work as a another opportunity instead of Hong Kong for people to come. And these are new shows, right? First year, brand new. They are aiming to return shortly after Labor Day in 22 to Denver. And the shows, from what I'm told, will be united at the Denver Convention Center rather than having one at the Sheraton and one at the Convention Center. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. So you want to shift gears a little bit? Yeah. I just read a uh, fascinating New York Times article (laughs) by yourself on uh, watches and sustainability. And I guess you you talked to three people. 
Yeah. Well, so there was a big sustainability theme section that ran in September and the Times has published numerous articles on the topic. So it's really hard to always find a new way in. So I pitched to my editor a piece where I interviewed three different people with different aspects or different perspectives on the watch industry and asked them about sustainability. So I talked to a collector because I think in the at heart, watchmakers have all these initiatives around being greener or more responsible. And I always wonder, does this even matter? I mean, do collectors think about these things? And I was able to find one who was very eloquent and very committed to it. He's a vegan and he talked about what he looks for in a watch and the kinds of things he cares about. Certainly it starts with straps for him. He didn't like leather straps. Yeah, either synthetic or plant-based straps. Uh, He talked about just being an informed consumer and what that means for him, what he looks for. And he was very conversant. I mean, he was able to cite Oris, which is a watchmaker that has a lot of awareness around its eco projects and the kind of recycled materials that it uses in its watches and what its efforts towards, you know, helping climate change. He was able to cite Chopard, which has done also a lot of communication around their ethical gold program. So this particular collector who I found through Red Bar, which is a big collectors group based out of New York. And he was very remarkably conversant on a lot of these things. Because I think you have certain collectors who are like, I just want the biggest, most impressive Rolex. And they don't really, they, they kind of stop there. So it was really encouraging to find somebody who has a pretty great collection. I think he said he had about 25 watches and but thinks about these things in a really intelligent and you know invested way. Um, I spoke to second representative from WWF, the World Wildlife Fund in Switzerland, which is on the brink of publishing kind of a follow-up to a report it published in 2018 on the jewelry and watch industry and where it's at in terms of its transparency, where it's at in terms of how it sources and how it communicates where it sources its products, primarily gold. He was not super pumped about the progress that had been made. And yeah, it doesn't feel like there's been a ton of progress in the last few years. He basically said the Swiss watch industry is sort of stuck in kind of an 80s mindset. You know, a lot of other industries, fashion and retail have moved on and have really embraced the need for creating sustainability advisory boards or whole sectors of their companies devoted to ensuring their sourcing protocols and things and how watchmakers are really not there yet, which is not that surprising to me. It's a pretty traditional world. And I think what he underscored and which does seem very true to me is that unless their customers or their investors start putting that pressure on them, then that's when we're going to see change. And for the big brands that are privately owned, like the Rolexes and Patek Philippe's and Audemars, ultimately it's going to have to come from their customers. Yeah, it, it's interesting because, you know, you do see so many companies embrace this. And I, sh- I should also note that the day we're taping this, Cartier and Caring, which is a big luxury conglomerate that owns a lot of watch brands, decided to get together and form something called the Jewelry and Watch Initiative. And basically, the idea is to kind of bring sustainability efforts in the industry to the next level, to have measurable sustainability goals, and to basically bring this up a notch. Because as you mentioned, you know, a lot of these brands are behind the curve. And a lot of times it is the big conglomerates like Cartier, owned by Richemont and Kering, who have the extra resources and are under perhaps a little bit more pressure to deal with some of these things. But it was very interesting. I was just on a webinar with somebody from a bank and this person was saying how the bank works for the social good and tries to make a positive difference and and things like that, which is, you know, to me, was just very unusual to hear that kind of talk from somebody who works for a bank, right? Because a bank is, you know, it's not the church. 
you work at a bank because you want to, you know, deal with money and make money. And I think a lot of the pressure is also coming from employees. I think it helps when people feel good about a company and it certainly hurts when people don't feel good about what a company is doing and the social benefit and the social impact. You know, it's not clear how much consumers care, but I think there's also the issue of risk mitigation when you're talking about governments and banks making sure that you don't get into a bad PR situation or a bad legal situation. I think that's driving a lot of this. Yeah, there's so much momentum behind this subject. I mean, to the degree that I'm actually working on a second green-themed section that's running in the Times on November 2nd time to the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, also known as COP26. And so I think a lot of what we're hearing now, including this initiative you mentioned with Cartier and Herring, is perhaps in the run-up to this conference because we're seeing a lot of media reports about it, a lot of communication. I'm working on a piece where, again, it's hard to find new ways to tackle this subject, but I decided I would go out to people in the industry, a mix of people, and ask them how they thought the watch industry could be greener. You know, I feel like the watch industry, it could certainly be greener, but it's not the biggest polluter in the world. A lot of, I mean, watches and a lot of watchmakers in the mechanical side will point this out, are one of the most sustainable energy producing, you know, they run on kinetic energy generated by the movement of your wrist. So there's really in some ways fewer things that could be more sustainable. A lot of it is the promotional architecture around these products, everything from the packaging that they go into to the business trips and the press trips that generate a lot of emissions when they're flying journalists all over the world. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's every day I see something that's that claims to be eco-friendly and sustainable. I think ultimately what you want is we shouldn't be going for a world where, hey, this is the ethical sneaker by this ethical sneaker. We should go into a world where every sneaker is produced in an ethical way and every watch and every bit of jewelry and every certainly every diamond and gem and pearl. And so that's ultimately what you want. And that's obviously not where we are right now. But ultimately, you want to have a consistent set of industry or government standards that just say this is where we're at. And if you know people wanted to do extra and do good and give to charities, I mean, that's great too. But you want to set a certain baseline. Yeah, well, I think that's all kind of coming to fruition, at least in the watch world. I mean, there's a lot more talk about using things like recycled steel, which... I do think the biggest problems for our industry lie in the sourcing of gold. Mm -hmm. Gold is a big problem and very tough to track. Very tough to track. So much of it is just melted at the refinery into a single glob that really is impossible to pull apart. And, And it's costly to figure out how to keep gold from certain places in its own particular channel and make sure it follows its own particular supply chain, all that. And so I think if the industry is more transparent about that and does look for more answers around its own gold supply, as each watchmaker tracks down its own supply and and is able to communicate that, then that's where I think the bigger impacts will come from is how those raw materials are sourced. And I think that's important, especially the supply chain part. When I talk to NGOs and activists, I mean, they're kind of getting away from the idea of, I mean, obviously sourcing is always going to be important and tracking your sourcing will be important, but they're starting to talk a little bit more about due diligence and it's kind of shifting. Like I had an NGO say to me, is like, yeah, we used to talk about like, oh, is your phone bloody, you know, and we don't necessarily talk about that anymore because it's more towards let's, you know, 
make sure that your work on due diligence systems include honest people that care. In the end, it's, it's, it's the bad people. The gold is a neutral thing, right? And diamonds are neutral and gems and all these things, they're all neutral, right? They're just products. It's what people do with them that is the, the problem. So yeah, I mean, there's all so much to unravel. It all feels very, very overwhelming and very, very daunting. So I do feel for brands. Why, why can't you just understand where it's come from? And it's like, well, it, the system was never built for that kind of traceability. Speaking of which, I would like to bring up the Pandora Papers, which is this massive leak of offshore data that was released this week. That's right. I would love to hear your take on it. I've just gotten the top line takeaway, but I don't really know how it's implicated our industry or what really we should understand about this. So yeah, do tell. You know, there's a million articles on this. And the ironic thing is people always talk about offshore and offshore, but there's certain places in the United States, South Dakota and Delaware, and they say Florida, that also have very big problems with corporate transparency and things like that. And South Dakota is supposed to be a real problem. But, you know, there's been a bunch of these leaks, and usually there's two or three industry names. And we are starting to see a couple of industry names come out. And I have to say, for the moment, it's not been too surprising. I think most of the names that have come out have been known to have some offshore holdings. First of all, there are legitimate uses for offshore trusts and sticking your money offshore. And most of the time it's legal. You know, the idea is that money, it doesn't go to taxes. In some cases, there have been big bankruptcies and big defaults, right? And either the bank gets stuck or the creditors get stuck. And it turns out there's a lot of money that's been taken away from the company and put offshore and nobody could trace it. Obviously, political leaders rob the treasury and stick it offshore where nobody can see it. So this is a, a big problem. And uh, a lot of the commentary I've read has said people thought when the Panama Papers came out that there would be action on this kind of thing because, you know, I pay my taxes. I'm sure you pay your taxes. So everybody else should pay their taxes. And, uh, you know, a regular person gets sued. They risk losing all their money and uh, certain super wealthy people because they can put their money in these trusts and hide it away and nobody knows how much they have. You know, they don't have to pay off of judgments and they don't have to pay lawsuits and stuff like that. So it becomes this two-tiered system where regular people are supporting the government and the higher echelons have these kind of complex structures to avoid doing that. So it's crazy and it's always disheartening. And, you know, especially with all this talk about social responsibility and all this stuff, people should be very leery about these kind of structures and these kind of schemes because they certainly make the industry look bad and they add to the perception that it's a not trustworthy industry. So can you name any of the actors that were implicated in these papers? And and if not, or in addition, can you tell me if any of them have responded or put out public statements? Benny Steinmetz, who's a big diamond dealer, he was found to have offshore holdings. Again, that's not news because he was in a leak a couple of leaks ago. Nirav Modi's family, there was an article about some of the bigger Indian companies. There was a big Indian bankruptcy that happened a while back where allegedly the owners had a lot of money uh, socked away and while the company itself went bankrupt. So there's been a bunch of these. I would not be shocked to see a few more because I know I've certainly seen a lot of companies, especially diamond companies with substantial offshore holdings. Uh, I think this is the kind of thing, you know, it might be perfectly legal, but it can certainly have bad PR ramifications. And, you know, it, depending again on uh, whether there's new legislation and, and stuff like that, it can possibly have legal ramifications. So. Yeah. All right. I don't know if we need to wait for another leak to remind us that this is no good. This is not the best way to operate. 
Well, I guess that's one more thing for, for our listeners if they are dealing with any bigger company like this to ask about or to think about as they consider where they're going to put their money. Yeah, I think so. And I, you know, I think we ultimately all need is some kind of very simple uh, due diligence tool. But yeah, that's the kind of like number one and it's, you know, Patriot Act compliance. Uh, that's what they always talk about. Oh my goodness. There's a lot. There's a lot going on. The world is as complicated as ever. I do have a cool guest coming up in a couple of weeks, so tune back in. As always, it's lovely to catch up with you. I feel like I haven't talked to you for a while, Rob. Where have you been? Where have I been? I've been galloping. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, you've been hanging out with like Spike Lee and stuff. Pretty much. I'm blowing this time stand. I got more important dinner dates to mingle with. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. Thank you.